Shana Tova. So in honor of the new year, I want to share a rotten little secret from my own faith. This is this nasty little tidbit within my own understanding and connection with Judaism that I've wrestled with for about nine or ten years now. And this came about, first started when I was in rabbinical school, and we're in this class about the ancient Israelites and learning about King Josiah, this Israelite king who lived in the 600s or so BCE. During his reign, his high priest was cleaning out the temple. They were doing some spring cleaning. This is the, uh, the first temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. And lo and behold, while they're going through and cleaning and dusting and doing whatever one does in the great temple, they found this curious scroll called the Book of the Instruction of the Law. And it warned of great danger. God was going to be very angry with them. So what should they do to make God happy? Well, the scroll said they needed to go out and they needed to destroy all the shrines, all the altars, all the matzevot, all the idols, all the religious points of any other god or any other people in the land of Israel. And they needed to do it wholesale. They needed to go through the cities, through the villages, and even through the homes. And so this was exactly what King Josiah did. He went, sent his priests and emissaries all through his kingdom to destroy everyone else's holy site, all the shrines, all the idols, all the altars, everything they could find. They proclaimed, there was only the one true God, yud heh vav the one we call Adonai, and the only place that you worship that God is at the great temple in Jerusalem. You had to come to King Josiah's capital to worship God. The reason this bothered me was the way that we learned it. It's kind of cynical that King Josiah's reforms, they're really just political consolidation, but they're disguised as monotheism. It was born out of King Josiah forcing everybody to come and worship at his capital and bring tribute to his temple that this came about. And so what, by the way, was this curious scroll that they found? What was this tool that he used for his, his political consolidation? What was this book that they dug up out of the first temple out of nowhere? Well, historians teach us that the mysterious scroll that just sprang up out of the temple is actually the book of Deuteronomy the last book of our very own Torah. So that, to me, is really uncomfortable. That's the rotten little piece I've been wrestling with. That King Josiah found the book of Deuteronomy and he used it to crush other people's religions and he used it for his own cynical political consolidation. One of the books of our very own Torah. And so, for years within my own rabbinate, I felt like I was ashamed by a book of the Torah. I felt like one of the books of the Torah had actually done something to my faith. And so I didn't talk about it. Definitely wouldn't talk about it at Rosh Hashanah or the High Holidays. Definitely wouldn't talk about it right now. But then something happened a few weeks ago and now I have to talk about it because it changed for me and it changed something within me. Now it changed in it. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Talmud, it wasn't some medieval rabbi. You all know that I love a lot of those Rabbanim and sages, but it wasn't any of them. It wasn't anything from history even. It wasn't any Jewish leader for that matter. What changed it for me was our very country, our own society. Those were what changed. Think back a few weeks, if you will. In some ways, it's kind of hard to think back because of this sort of crazy-making 24-hour news cycle that we have, but... Come with me for just a moment in thinking back. 
not to uh, Torah or Devarim, Deuteronomy or anything like that, the ancient Israelites. Come with me to the American South and come with me to Charlottesville, Virginia. Charlottesville, a few weeks ago, a rally took place that brought together white nationalists, white supremacists, Confederate sympathizers, KKK, and other kinds of neo-Nazis. The emergence of these groups led to violence and street fights. A young man espousing these ideas drove a car into a crowd of people, injuring many, killing one, a young woman named Heather Heyer. In the wake of that violence in Charlottesville, it's a quiet little town in the mountain, I don't know how many of y'all have been there, but there was a sentiment among people that something had changed. Felt people were unsettled in a new way, in a different way in the wake of these events. The Jewish community itself spoke out against what happened. They talked about what it felt like to be there on the ground and to hear these people marching and saying, Jews will not replace us and seek Heil. They talked about what it was like to go to synagogue with three skinheads across the street with their assault rifles, just watching them coming and going. And what it was like that their clergy and their staff told their congregation, when you leave, go out the back entrance over there. Don't go out the front because we don't want to provoke anything with these people. A week later, that same fear came to Durham, North Carolina, where I grew up. The KKK and Nazi groups, they said they were coming to Durham next. In response, the conservative synagogue where I grew up, Congregation Bethel, they reached out to local law enforcement. And the police in turn told my synagogue, we can't ensure your safety. We can't protect you. And so that week, just before Shabbat, the president of my home shul sent out an email announcing that they were closing. They evacuated their people from the building along with their Torah scrolls, and they closed. This is where I grew up. It's where I learned my very first Hebrew letters when I was in first grade. I had my bar mitzvah there when I was 13. On the high holidays when I was a little kid, uh, I would go run around outside in the parking lot with the other kids, and we'd throw these hard little red poisonous berries at each other. This is <laughs> what we did for our Rosh Hashanah, for our New Year's. Spent my teenage years of that holiday. We had one of these buildings that the back would open up into the social hall, and so we would sort of hide in the back so we could be in the services, but also kind of cutting up, as it were. And yet here we are in 2017. My synagogue locked its doors, and they took its Torah scrolls away. In the year 2017, nothing like this has ever happened in my lifetime in Durham. And it made me think of the stories that my grandpa used to tell me when I was a kid. This is in the 90s. When he was getting ready to go away, leave home, go to college, he got a letter from the college he'd been accepted to, and they told him uh, that he couldn't come because they'd actually reached their Jew quota already. And so his acceptance was revoked. The last minute he changed his plans, he was accepted by and attended the University of Minnesota. And then it happened again in the 1940s. The Second World War broke out, because he was uh, an aeronautical engineer by training. He was uh, to be granted a commission, and serve, an officer's commission, and serve as a combat pilot. But then it was the same thing. Again, we've got our Jew quota already. Can't be an officer. He enlisted in the Navy. He served in the Pacific Fleet. But he always told me when I was a kid not to forget that I was Jewish, because he said, the world won't forget that you're Jewish. Now see, the thing is, when I was a kid growing up in Durham, North Carolina, that made no sense to me. None at all. I went to a small Quaker school in Durham 
where probably a quarter to a third of the kids were all Jewish. These were all the kids of the various professors and doctors and academics attached to Duke and UNC, the universities there. So this idea that the world would have something against Jews, that didn't make any sense to me. Back when he was telling me those stories, those stories kind of sounded like the stories he told me of his grandparents, the stories he told me of Cossacks in Eastern Europe, the violence against Jewish communities there. And to be honest, back in the 90s, his stories of the Jew quota sounded about as immediate and familiar as the Cossacks. It just sounded to me like a completely different world. But there it is. In 2017, just before Shabbat, my synagogue evacuated its people and its Torahs because of the fear of hate groups. Thank God violence didn't come to pass. Chas v'chalila, God forbid, what if it had? It's, it's hard for me to even talk about it, but the hard thing is that it's also a horrifyingly regular part of Jewish history. That's the thing. Think about the great temples that stood 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem that are no more. Think of the great Talmudic academies of 1,500 years ago. Pumadita and Nehardea. Nehardea was called the seat of the Holy Shekhinah, the seat of God's presence herself in the east. Today that area is called Fallujah, and it was destroyed in a couple of battles in the Iraq War. It was liberated from ISIS last year. Think, if you will, if you will of the, the Jewish communities of Spain that lived in great harmony and peace with their Muslim neighbors. Think of all these rabbits, these rabbis and Hebrew poets of Cordoba. Rabbits and rabbis, I know, there's a tongue twister. <laughs> but think of the rabbis for a moment, not the rabbits, of Cordoba. These were actually a lot of the rabbis who wrote our own liturgy, the liturgy that we have for Yom Kippur. And they were driven out. They were driven away by the Inquisition were tortured or driven underground or driven across the Mediterranean basin. You can think of all the communities of Eastern Europe, some of these very, very traditional Haredi communities with the black hats who follow one Rebbe or another, named after these villages and these communities in Eastern Europe who are no more, that they were destroyed in the Shoah. See, the thing is, if you track this stuff long enough, the idea of evacuating Torah scrolls from Durham, it comes into a different kind of of terrible focus. It takes you to a dark place. But hate didn't seize Durham. Maruch Hashem. I'm guessing that while most of you heard about Charlottesville, I'll bet many of you didn't hear about Durham because those groups didn't actually show up in the end. They said they were coming, but never showed. I can't say why they didn't come, but I do want to voice my appreciation for those who showed up peacefully to oppose the hate rally. That night, after I got that email, I was on Facebook, and it was full of people I knew from grade school, from college, and they were all in the streets, all of them, to oppose hatred. It's my buddy from my sixth grade homeroom, Tim Scales. This guy from one of my high school bands, Johnny Henderson. Woman from my dorm, my sophomore and junior years of college, Malin Moran. They all turned out in the streets. None of them was Jewish, but they all turned out in the streets to oppose that kind of hatred. And I'm relieved, and I'm grateful for those who did show up to speak from our values. So now what brought those hate groups to Charlottesville? Why was it that they said they were going to come to Durham even though they didn't? What was the impetus behind all of that? And then what does any of this have to do with Deuteronomy? The neo-Nazis and the Klan and the white supremacists, all of them that showed up to Charlottesville, did so because the city and the University of Virginia were in talks to remove a statue 
Confederate General Robert E. Lee. They threatened to come to Durham for the same reason, that there's a statue of Robert E. Lee that graces the Durham County Courthouse, a statue which was subsequently illegally torn down by college students from NC Central, a historically black college in Durham. There's a fight going on for the soul of the United States right now. Who is one of us? Who is a real American? Who is us and who's them on the outside? See, I believe that these statues represent more than the American Civil War or General Lee's command. And I say this as a native son of the South, a son of North Carolina. Those statues represent a vision of American society. They're not about history and they're not about memory, I don't believe. They're staking a claim on the future. And it's a future that I do not support and that does not speak to our values. And they're like Deuteronomy in another way too, actually. They assert this veneer of authenticity, of history, that actually isn't true. It's false. It's not historically correct. Deuteronomy wasn't written while the people were wandering in the desert with Moses toward the last days of his life. Deuteronomy was pulled out of the first temple. We know it came later on. It wasn't when the people were wandering. It came from when the people were already in the land and they had established a kingdom and the great temples. That was when Deuteronomy came about, even though it says it's from before. And the statues of Lee didn't go up during the American Civil War or even during the aftermath of the Civil War. The statues of Lee were constructed during Jim Crow in the early part of the 20th century. They were put up decades later. They were put up intentionally to stake a claim on the future, bearing the authenticity of the past. This taught me something profound about Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy taught me something about our country today. All those religious sites, the shrines, the monuments, the matzevot that we get in Deuteronomy, the ones that King Josiah tore down, to bring together the ancient Israelites, they had to come down. King Josiah saw beyond. He had a greater vision. He saw beyond the conflicts of the 12 tribes, the warring between Binyamin, Asher, God, Ephraim, and Manasseh. He saw beyond the war between the southerners and the northerners of Judah and Israel, the respective kingdoms. King Josiah had a vision that was greater than that, and King Josiah had a vision of an Israelite nation. It reminded me when I was on the cross-country team in high school. We used to run through the woods of Duke Forest, this set of land that was uh, managed and cared for and curated by researchers from Duke's Environmental School. And there's a section of forest, I remember this one year, that the researchers raised in a controlled burn, burned it down intentionally. I remember that season in cross country running past that one section that was carefully raised and seeing this black landscape with these blackened spires of these remaining trees that stood, that were burned. But then the next year, the next season in cross country, we ran through and what did we see? It was green. There were shoots. There were buds. There were flowers coming up from this landscape. There were squirrels and there were birds. The land was growing. I think that these researchers in Duke's Environmental School, they had the vision and the faith of King Josiah, that they had to clear away what had been there in order to give life to what could be. And maybe it's the story of what we're in right now as we struggle for the soul of the American future. 
Don't misunderstand me. I would pray for a minimum of upheaval or instability or any kind of violence in this struggle for the American soul. But that kind of deadwood of identity had to be burned out of Duke Forest and perhaps torn off of the Durham County court steps. Perhaps we do need to take stock and clear away what prevents us from growing as an American people. So now here's a question. What do you do with those artifacts, with the statues? What do you do with an object that means too much to get rid of, but too much to keep? What do you do with an object that has no home and no proper place, no correct usage in that way? We're actually going to return to that question on Yom Kippur. For Yom Kippur, though, we're not going to be talking about these stone statues of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. We're actually going to be looking at it through this little stuffed animal, this small stuffed dog named Bugsy. Stay tuned. (laughs) But this year, holding the violence and the fear of Charlottesville and Durham, it's led me to a greater understanding of what it means to tear down a monument or a vestige of something that worships division and sows conflict. For me, this summer revalued King Josiah and his reforms. It sanctified the book of Deuteronomy in a way that I hadn't been able to hold it for about 10 years. And it also speaks to the kinds of shame we might carry. It's to pull us out of this Jewish sin of idolatry that we have strewn throughout the Torah and rabbinic material. It's to pull us out of the American, the shame of the American sins of slavery and of racism and of hatred. There's shame, but the thing is faith communities have always led the way. We see that in Deuteronomy and we see it in the United States. We saw it in the priests of ancient Israel who cleared out all of these monuments in order to build one Israelite nation. And we saw it in the leaders of faith communities who came together from so many different traditions in the wake of Charlottesville to protest and to give voice against that kind of hatred. And as it turns out, as Jews, we are particularly well-equipped for this moment. You know, we're the children of Abraham, right? This sounds familiar to people. I see some heads nodding along. We're the children of Abraham. But if we take that seriously, if we believe that, we're also the grandchildren of Terah, Abraham's father, the famous idol maker. But we do have the religious and cultural DNA of Abraham. He's the one who tore down his father's idols, these idols of Tmol Shilshom of days long ago. Let's not commit to an American identity based on fear and of hatred, of division, worshipping a certain kind of conflict between us. Let us envision an American society based on our highest values, our compassion, and our love. I mean, it's a lofty project. It's probably more than 57, 78, to be honest. But it can start here. It may take decades and it may take centuries. It may be fraught with conflict, but it can start here. On this Rosh Hashanah, this day of the rebirth of the world, I'm actually feeling a great renewal of faith. I have faith in us who are the grandchildren of Terach the idol maker and the children of Abraham, the one who tears down idols. I have faith in us, the Israelites, the people who came together from Deuteronomy, from these 12 tribes that were at war with one another, that we became one Israelite nation. You see, it's the reason we're even here in this room today. It's the reason we've endured and we've survived as Jews is because we were able to come together as one Israelite nation. And this Rosh Hashanah, I have a renewed faith in all of us in this room 
All of us. All of us who are in our Jewish communities, and us as people, as citizens of the United States of America. It will be hard, but you must act. You may have to act much like my Facebook friends in Durham did and show their support and speak against hatred. You may have to act in the way that Julie Silver did, that in the wake of Charlottesville, she got a plane ticket and flew right there to support that community. You may have to act. But I have faith in what it is that we can build in place of those idols and those monuments in 5778 in the years and the decades and the centuries to come. In words of Maimonides, Anima Amin Ba'amunash Lema, I believe with a perfect faith, in fact, in what it is that we can build together with action, with understanding, with compassion, and with love. Shana Tovah.